Formosa Files is sponsored by the Frank C. Chen Cultural Foundation. Frank Chen, Chen Qi Tuan, served as the mayor of Kaohsiung City from 1960 to 1968 and founded the Kaohsiung Medical College. Formosa Files. Today, we've got two amazing aviation stories from the Second World War. First up is a case of a ghost plane, a Phantom P-40 American fighter plane. So our story starts in late 1942 in Fujian, just across the strait from northern Taiwan, to be exact, at what was called Jianhao, inland, northern Fujian province. We're at a small airfield with the Flying Tigers. The Flying Tigers was the nickname for the American Volunteer Force of the Republic of China Air Force. These were American pilots flying for the Chinese nationalists, commanded by legendary figure Claire Lee Chenault. And yes, his first name really was Claire. Hmm. The Flying Tiger planes were Curtis P-40B Warhawk aircraft. They were marked with Chinese colors, the White Star. But best remembered, of course, for their dramatic shark nose. The, the nose of the fighters was painted with the menacing eyes and the teeth of sharks. Just to be accurate on naming. Now, with the U.S. officially in the war, the Flying Tigers were disbanded and absorbed into the U.S. military and rebranded as the China Air Task Force. So we're at a tiny airfield in Fujian, China in late 1942. It's early dusk on a rainy afternoon. There are eight P-40s on the runways, their shark noses visible through the haze. Flight leader Johnny Hampshire and his men have been there for a week without seeing any action. Then a warning comes in. A single unidentified plane coming their way, flying very low. It's perplexing. The Japanese never come this far inland in this kind of weather, and certainly not a single craft. Too easy a target. So Hampshire decides to investigate him in one plane and a pilot called Costello in a second. And Hampshire says, get on my wing and stay close. Keep the other six planes on the ground unless I call. As they get into the air, the mystery plane is 20 miles to the east. They encounter it about 10 miles from the airfield and maneuver to attack from above. This was an unidentified aircraft coming from enemy territory and their orders were to shoot it down. Both Americans bore down on the plane and fired. Their attack brought them close enough to see the plane's marking, and Costello radioed, That's the American insignia. It's a P-40. But it was a P-40 from the past. It was the old American insignia. Blue background with a white star and a red center. Um, you mean like a red rising sun? Yep. The United States had stopped using that marking because the red center looked too much like the rising sun, which the Japanese used. Yeah, very confusing. Good, good move. So the two American pilots, um, they're up there and they, they suspect a trick. They were going to put some more rounds into it, but then they realized there was no point. The P-40 had been literally shot to pieces before they ever saw it. Much of the cockpit had been shot away. The fuselage was full of holes and the wings damaged and there were no wheels. Not just no wheels, but no landing gear, suggesting it had never had wheels in the first place. Now, Hampshire and Costello, flying close behind the P-40, could see the pilot slumped forward 
his bloody face, and apparently did for quite a while. The ghost plane soon crashed into the ground and exploded, and when a ground crew got to the downed P-40, they saw how badly riddled with bullets it was. The plane had been shot at from all directions, from below and above. It was amazing the pilot had managed to fly it so far. In the dead pilot's leather jacket were letters and a notebook diary, partially destroyed. The Americans learned that this guy was surnamed Cheryl, and he went by the nickname Corn. Corn Cheryl, uh, apparently because he liked corn liquor, you know, corn alcohol. Uh, They make it back in his native South Carolina. He'd been sent to Manila in 1937, first assigned to a pursuit squadron, later becoming an officer in charge of constructing a chain of small airfields. I should say that in the source we're using, the author gives a footnote for this pilot, Cheryl. He writes, the name is fictitious for the sake of military security. You're talking about the Reader's Digest version, yeah? Yes, uh, a story called Ghost Ship in the Reader's Digest uh, from January 1945. Reader's Digest was huge back then, so this would have been a well-known story, probably the best known involving Taiwan. Yes, the original story was from the year before, 1944, in a book called Damned to Glory by Robert Lee Scott Jr., a fighter ace, And this ghost plane story was the first in the book and the subject of the great cover image on the book. So you said a fighter ace? Yeah, credited with downing 13 Japanese aircraft. Later, that figure was lowered to 10, but over a period of 15 months. But that was just part of his highly decorated flying career. He also wrote a dozen books, most famously the highly influential God is My Co-Pilot, which was made into a movie in 1945. He was a great teller of tales, often tall tales. He was a genuine war hero, brave and successful, but when he took to spinning a yarn, uh, you needed a fact checker. So with those impressive credentials also came a a bit of a warning on credibility. But uh, let's get back to this U.S. Army pilot, Corn Sherrill. He's in the Philippines when the Japanese attack at the same time as Hawaii, and they're attacking from Formosa. And John, you know, the American loss of the Philippines, it really was embarrassing, a total shambles. And I would speculate it's probably why we hear so little about it. The loss of the Philippines to the Japanese is a contender for the title of the worst military defeat in U.S. history. American forces held out on the Bataan Peninsula for a while, but surrender came in April 1942. And then early May, General Jonathan Wainwright surrendered the island fortress of Corregidor, an island which guarded the entry to Manila Bay. Wainwright was the commander of Allied forces in the Philippines at that time because General Douglas MacArthur had escaped a couple of months earlier and he went to Australia, as I recall. That's right. In March, he fled from the island of Corregidor, which was surrounded by the Japanese. General Jonathan Wainwright, he's the commander, and when he surrendered, the Japanese forced him to announce a complete surrender of American forces in the Philippines. You know, the the general would spend much of the rest of the war as a prisoner of war here in Taiwan. Was that at the uh, famous Kinkaseki POW camp in the northeast? No, at another camp for high-ranking officers at Karenko. Ah, Karenko. That would be modern-day Hualien. 
Yep. But even a general like Wainwright and other officers were treated harshly. Starvation rations and such. So bad, in fact, that when a Red Cross inspection team came, I think in 1943, the Japanese moved the men down temporarily to a, a new camp in Tamazato. Tamazato? A small town, what is today Yuli, is about 90 kilometers south of Hualien City. Okay, but back to this ghost pilot Cheryl Korn character in the Philippines. He's flying missions with the last of the Air Force and retreating airfield by airfield southward. With the surrender of Corregidor in early May, part of the deal is the surrender of all American forces in the Philippines. But some chose to continue a guerrilla fight. According to the Ghost Plane story, six months after Pearl Harbor, Corn Sherrill finds himself part of an outfit on Mindanao, the southernmost major island of the Philippines. This band of holdouts consists of 11 mechanics and one busted-up plane, a P-40 Warhawk. Its wings are good, and likewise six working 50 cal machine guns. And four miles away, the Americans find another P-40, and they take the fuselage carried by local tribesmen uh, back to the wings, and the Americans somehow manage to make a working plane from these two wrecks. And the story goes that these holdouts cut a 5,000-foot runway, and because they didn't have wheels, they made bamboo skis for takeoff. And the plane was fitted with an extra 50-gallon gas tank. There's ammunition for the machine guns and four 300-pound bombs. They're not using the plane for escape, but for attack. So they've got a working plane, uh, maybe. So what's the attack plan? They want to hit back at the Japanese, so it's a matter of doing the most damage. The plane and its single pilot will hit Formosa. The story says, quote, It was 1,000 miles to the Great Jap Naval Station at Taihoku. The, the Great Japanese Naval Station at Taihoku? Uh, that would be modern-day Taipei? That uh, would have been a good plan, except for two details. Uh, one, it's on the wrong end of the island if you're coming from the south, right? And secondly, there's no naval station at Taioku. <laughs> right, very odd. So if putting a plane together in the jungle from two wrecks isn't a bit suspicious, then this certainly is. The naval port and airfields of Takao or Kaohsiung in the south would make a lot more sense. Yes, and in another retelling of this tale, I've seen Takao used instead of Taihoku. So the story says on December 8th, 1942, that's one day after the anniversary of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, Lieutenant Sherrill took off from the jungle airstrip. He dropped the bamboo skis and flew toward Formosa, and five hours after takeoff, he reaches Formosa. No naval port mentioned in the story, but an an airfield with neat rows of parked fighters and bombers. Quote, he strafed them row on row and he cut the Jap flag from the headquarters building with his wingtip. He laid his first wing bomb right in the enemy offices. End quote. Now, the P 40 was taking anti aircraft fire. All that pilot Korn could do was keep low uh, where the gunners could not spot him too long at a time. And he continued strafing every plane he could get his sights on. Japanese Zero fighters caught him dropping his last bomb into a hangar. And he and his plane were shot up, but he got away. His instruments were damaged, but he sent his plane due west to China. 
a Chinese airfield 250 miles away where he would arrive already dead, a ghost pilot intercepted and shot down by P-40s of the China Air Task Force. And that would be the end of our story. Um, hmm. <laughs> John, we, we dropped a few hints. I particularly like the clipping the Japanese flag with your wingtip. Um, <laughs> we, we, we dropped some hints, but it's time to come clean. This story cannot be true. Right. The story is a fabrication. I suspect the author made it up, killing time with his flying tiger buddies, and it took on a life of its own. He admitted in a later retelling that it was highly embellished, as so few details were known, but... Mm, but, like, is there even a kernel of truth to it, do you think? I would bet my last bottle of corn liquor on it being a complete <laughs> fabrication. Yeah, yeah and, and strangely, it's a stubborn story that refuses to die. I first came upon it in a book on mysteries of the Second World War, published this century, and presented as fact. There's some interesting speculation and information on the internet about this ghost P-40. An author and military historian called Daniel Ford, who has written about the Flying Tigers, he investigated the story. He says Robert Lee Scott retold the story again in a Boston magazine, but this time he made the hero a Boston native. Ford also cites an online account written by a Dave uh, Kite or Knight. I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name. This guy said he attended a live event where General Scott was asked about the Mindanao P-40 story in a question and answer forum. Yes, according to this account, Scott laughed and said he and another flying tiger pilot made it up as a lark during the war. They later admitted it was a joke, but the thing refused to die. He said they were stunned to see the thing in print in an issue of Air Classics. Uh, that's a magazine. And if they had any idea that it would be still around 40-some-odd years later uh, at that time, they wouldn't have done it. <laughs> okay. So sort of like our original uh, Salmanazar story, 100% uh, uh, hoax. So mm -hmm. from late 1942, uh, those were dark days for the Allies, we move two years forward now to when the Americans are closing in on the edges of the Japanese heartland. And we move from a fictional fighter pilot hero to a real one, though both could be called ghost pilots, I guess. We're talking about the Formosa Air Battle of October 12th through 16th, 1944, the skies above Taiwan are ablaze with dueling fighter planes. During these days, there were a series of large-scale aerial engagements between American planes flying from aircraft carriers and Japanese land-based air forces of the Imperial Japanese Navy and Imperial Japanese Army. Taiwan was hit by numerous daytime American air raids against Japanese military installations on land and air. The Japanese suffered more than 300 planes destroyed, and this air battle would remove effective air cover for upcoming operations in the Philippines. So our story starts on the morning of the first day of the Formosan air battle. That would be October 12th, 1944. Aircraft of the U.S. Third Fleet attacked Japanese military facilities in southern Taiwan and battled with Japanese fighters in the air. Among these Japanese fighters is Sugura Shigamine. He's 20 years old, an Imperial Japanese Navy pilot flying out of Tainan. He takes to the air in his Zero Fighter. A Model 32 Zero Fighter for aviation buffs. 
Like other Zeros, it's a highly maneuverable fighter, but part of that maneuverability comes at the cost of protection. It was fragile, and as with many of his colleagues that day, uh, it will be his last flight. So in the air battle, Suguro's fighter was hit by machine gun fire and burst into smoke and flames. He's going down. His plane is headed for a village. The young Japanese pilot manages to pull the nose of his plane up and divert it from crashing into the settlement, instead crashing into a nearby field. And this was witnessed by local Taiwanese. So Sugiura could have tried to save himself by ejecting from the craft, but instead chose to save the village by steering his plane clear. So these Zeros were a bit of a death trap. They, they didn't come with ejector seats, right? Right. I think escape was a case of ejecting a canopy and jumping out if you had your parachute on. Anyway, witnesses also saw Sugiura's body at the crash scene, which must have been pretty grisly. In an excellent article on this story by Taiwanese-based journalist Katakura Yoshifumi, he says the only clue to the identity of the aviator was the name written on his boots. The badly burnt corpse was, quote, recovered by the Japanese military and later honored in group services in Taiwan and his native Mito. Mito is a little bit north of Tokyo. So that would sound like the end of the story, but no. Today, this young pilot, Sugiura Shigemine, is venerated as a deity. He's General Flying Tiger, and he got to be this deity because of his heroic act. Hmm. General Flying Tiger, quite a name. Yeah, but uh, there's no connection to the American Flying Tigers of World War II China. It's a separate thing. So there's a temple in a northern Tainan suburb where you can find the Zhang'an Tang, also known as the General Flying Tiger Temple, Feihu Jun Miao. For such a great backstory, the temple setting is a little disappointing. A typically drab urban setting, lots of concrete. It's on a corner, no sidewalks, you know, treeless streets. Family mart uh, on one of the opposite corners. Uh, there's a banner proclaiming in Japanese, uh, you know, welcome uh, worshippers from Japan. But otherwise, the small temple is uh, a typical Taoist temple. You've got two dragons on the roof and three god figures at the center, which are very common. Uh, they represent blessings, salary, uh, and longevity. But if you go inside, the temple is quite different. For a start, it's dedicated to a single deity, not a multitude. In the center of the hall uh, sit three elaborately decorated statues of the deified Sugiura General Flying Tiger. The main statues are flanked by two other smaller figures. The larger main statue figure is black. Yeah, um, black. That's actually not an uncommon feature of temple statues in Taiwan. Right. Quite striking, isn't it? When you go into a temple and uh, on the altar is a black-faced god or goddess. Yeah, and it's not just like dark wood or something, but painted or stained you know, completely black. Yeah, the Matsu statue at my local temple, um, yeah, she's black. When I asked about it, I got several answers. Black indicates antiquity and holiness, uh, some told me, uh, related to the amount of incense smoke burned. And because of the staining from incense burning, uh, the statues can become dirty, so they just paint them to hide that staining. 
And you also see some non-black-faced Matsus. They're generally kept in glass cases. Hmm, that's interesting. So this Tsungnan Temple in Tainan is entirely dedicated to one deity, the General Flying Tiger, which is unusual in Taiwan. So how did things go from a fatal crash of a Japanese fighter pilot to him becoming essentially a, a minor god with his own temple? Yeah, World War II ended the summer after his death, uh, and then there was the arrival of the nationalists from China, and erasure of Japanese culture, right? People repatriated to Japan, language replaced, shrines replaced, and so on. Taiwanese were encouraged to forget their recent Japanese colonial past. But in this area of Tainan, local people began telling of seeing a young soldier in a white hat in their dreams. And not just in dreams, there were mysterious sightings of a young man in a white uniform at night near fish ponds. You said a white uniform. So white uniforms are usually naval uniforms. Yes. Okay, so Katakura Yoshifumi, that Japanese journalist you mentioned earlier, he writes, quote, Seeking an answer to the sightings, residents went to the priest of Chaohuang Temple, the main shrine in the area dedicated to the revered god of medicine, Baosheng Dadi. The god of medicine instructed the local people uh, through a priest that Sugiura should be honored with a title and a place of worship. In 1971, villagers built a shrine for their hero. It grew in reputation, attracting worshippers from around Taiwan and also some from Japan. And the present temple was built in 1993. I'm, I'm kind of uh, surprised that the, the new authorities on Taiwan at that time uh, allowed this very strong memory of uh, a Japanese hero. Yeah, perhaps Tainan is slightly different from up north. Mm. So worshippers who come to the temple, they, they go there seeking help or guidance from General Flying Tiger. And that could include help for students passing exams or luck in health and work. Yes. The article writes, Once in the morning, to the tune of the Japanese national anthem, don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to sing it, <laughs> and then again in the evening to the patriotic song, If I Should Go to Sea, worshippers light cigarettes, worshippers light cigarettes, and set them before the figures. And this ritual's been going on every day since 1993. So they set cigarettes like incense in front of it. Interesting. Mm. Cigarettes. Um, I guess the pilots were heavy smokers. Um, it makes sense because it's a way to steady the nerves before flying into combat. Safer than downing a few bowls of sake, I guess. Anyway, the shrine has developed strong links with Shugura's hometown of Mito. Shugura was born in Mito, Ibaraki Prefecture, in 1923. As a young man, he had initial training at the Imperial Navy's air base in Ibaraki and then came to Formosa for more advanced training. People in Mito have raised money to provide Zhengnan Temple with a mikoshi, sometimes translated as a portable shrine, but it's basically the, the palaquin or sedan chair you see in those processions. The Mito one came tipped with a golden replica of the Zero Fighter flown by Shugura. Now, it's not life-size, but it's relatively big, and it's made with gold, so it's pretty awesome. We'll post a picture on our website. This gift came in 2015 and is a new symbol of the temple. In 2016, a delegation from the General Flying Tiger Temple accompanied 
the statue, the main statue, to Mito in Japan, where there were special memorial events. And a nice footnote, the General Flying Tiger statue wasn't checked in as baggage, but got a proper seat on the airplane. Yeah, you'll see that all the time, even on the high-speed rail. You'll see yes. a god being transported. He gets his own seat, or she gets her own seat. So, um, that's, you know, that's a pretty heartwarming story, capturing a lot of Taiwanese traits, actually. Um, some religious, uh, generousness, and then definitely a fondness for Japan. A fondness for building temples. Uh, yeah. As I've said before, my in-laws have one. <laughs> yeah, freedom of religion. If I had to choose a single virtue of this beautiful island, I would say freedom, especially freedom of religion. So, I raise a glass to the general flying tiger, his courage and sacrifice. Although, John, it doesn't take much to get you to raise a glass to uh, something or anything. Mm. Okay, so you got two stories today. One, a fabrication, maybe perhaps a tiny element of truth to it. And the other, a true story. I really like this Japanese fighter pilot. There are other stories like this uh, in Pingdong and other places of pilots, Chinese, Taiwanese, who their planes are going down and they decide to take their, their life rather than risk hurting civilians. And wow, to do that is quite brave. And I've got plenty more aviation stories to tell, but I'm going to ration them out. Uh, they're among my favorites. Okay. Thanks for listening to this episode of Formosa Files. Feel free to write us at uh, formosafiles at gmail.com. And of course, check out our website, formosafiles.com. I'm Eric Michael Smith. I'm John Ross. 